Hey, podcast listeners, this is Kobe from the Common Thread Podcast. And this is Matthias. Now, today is April 4th. It's the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King Jr.'s Beyond Vietnam speech. Uh, so, on April 4th, 1967, he stood at the pulpit of Riverside Church in New York City, which uh, Reverend Julian Cook called America's Pulpit, and he gave a strong condemnation of the war in Vietnam. So, essentially, at that point in time, the liberal establishment in the United States was still very much in favor of the prosecution of the war as it was being executed at that point. And MLK decided to explicitly argue against that position on moral grounds, economic grounds, and social grounds. And he did so in a very vigorous way that engendered a very serious backlash against him, his movement, the people he represented, and created a lot of turmoil for him at that point. He really, he really went out on a limb. Right. So uh, this clip that you're about to hear is about 12 or 13 minutes long. It's a segment of an episode that we did last year on April 4th covering the radical Martin Luther King Jr. And uh, the reason we did this is because, Matthias, uh, you went to this event and uh, you felt that BU was kind of whitewashing the legacy. And, and it's true because in this period from sort of I have a dream onwards, we don't really get much information about MLK. We, we uh, get this whitewashed image of the idealist, the idle dreamer. But what's really happening in this 63 to 68 period is, is much more radical. There are a lot of interesting thoughts going on inside that man's head. And so the episode we did, you can find at the bottom of our archive. It's the first episode um, where we talked to Ryan Hendrickson, an archivist at uh, Moore Memorial Library. And we talked to Reverend Julian Cook, who uh, now works at the Howard Thurman Center. Um, and the reason we're doing this episode and releasing this clip right now is both because today is the 50th anniversary and then also because on Friday uh, there's going to be a discussion. Do you want to tell the listeners about that? So on Friday, April 7th at 3 p.m. in the afternoon, Andrew Kimball and Emily Ling, who are two Boston University School of Theology graduate students, are going to lead a discussion at the Howard Thurman Center regarding the legacy and significance of the Beyond Vietnam speech that was given at Riverside Church, and we really hope you enjoy this excerpt. All right, so we've discussed King beginning to speak out on economic issues. Uh, you know, a lot of people start telling him that he's, he's out of his element, uh, but there's another area that he speaks out and where he starts beginning to take what some might call a radical position in this later portion of his life. Uh, in 1965, uh, he, he starts speaking on this. So Vietnam, so Vietnam is a big deal. So so when when he when he initially addresses Vietnam, this is within the context of the month of March 1965, which is which is a month during which the entire the the entire uh, situation regarding the Selma marches from Selma to Montgomery were occurring. Right. So that in and of itself was a period of intense news cycle attention to King and the movement, the civil rights movement. And he, he's actually asked a question about what he thinks about Vietnam. And in that context, King, King answers that millions of dollars can't be spent every day to hold troops in South Vietnam and our country cannot protect the rights of Negroes in Selma. That's the first time he addresses it in any way. It's kind of an oblique criticism. He's not making a direct attack on the idea of a war in Vietnam. And it's important to highlight that at this time, the people don't want him, people that are aligned with him don't want him speaking about the war because they think that's going to divert attention. And they think that that is going to put him in political opposition 
to the biggest ally that they have at this point in the federal government, which is LBJ. On the other uh, on the other hand, again, it's important to remember that when he makes these initial declarations in '65, the war in Vietnam is not unpopular at this point. Quite the opposite. Across the United States, there there's a majority of people who agree with the premise of the war in Vietnam, ma mainly containing communism in Southeast Asia. He expresses clearly a disagreement with the way the war is being prosecuted and the way the U.S. is approaching Southeast Asia and in particular Vietnam here. So he first talked about it in March 65 where he makes the comment about the millions of dollars spent in Vietnam when, it's, when, when they could be protecting the rights of Negroes in Selma. Then he also makes another comment uh, later on that summer, on the 29th of August 1965, he, he tells reporters on Face of the, Face the Nation that as, as a minister he had a prophetic function and as one greatly concerned about the need for peace in our world and the survival of mankind, I must continue to take a stand on this issue with regards to his opposition to Vietnam and why he insisted on it. Then there's a period, a period of time where he's faced with an unbelievable amount of political pressure from all sides, from the black side, from the white side, from the liberal side, the conservative side. Everybody, everybody is pressuring MLK to back down. To the point that LBJ actually had the American UN, UN ambassador take King aside and, and basically explain to him that he should, he should really stay out of, of the, the issue entirely. And so I have a, I have a great passage uh, from, from Vincent, Vincent Harding that, that kind of explains the dynamics behind the pressure that he was receiving. So Harding says this. So United Nations Ambassador Arthur Goldberg was assigned to assure King that all was well, that peace was in the air, and Martin later said he was stunned by the nature and amount of the pressure that mounted against those first public statements he made on the way. They told me I wasn't an expert in foreign affairs, and they were all experts, he said. They told him I knew only civil rights and I should stick to that. King backed down temporarily, but the die had been cast. The Negro hero had been told to stay in his place, colored place, to leave foreign affairs to white folks, to squelch any naive thoughts that nonviolence in Birmingham might be in any way re related to nonviolence in Vietnam. And then he goes on to say this. I think this is really, really demonstrative passage about King's appeal and, and King's value to, 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 to American history and to American culture. He said, King could not be tied down anywhere. That was part of his strange appeal and great danger. Increasingly, he came to see himself as advocate for the poor and the oppressed wherever they were. They became like fire in his bones. So we have this period, 1965, uh, he's, he speaks about the war obliquely. Mm -hmm. 1966, we don't want to say he's silenced, but he becomes quieter. Right. He right. doesn't... He's, a, he's not engaging with it directly. He's not engaging because, as, as, as we saw in the quote, the white people basically said he was out of his element, right? <laughs> right. He, was, he received a lot of political pressure from, from, from the liberal establishment that supported the civil rights movement. Yeah, the people right? so that he were couldn't alienate. He, so he was in a really difficult spot because at the same time he wanted to stay, remain faithful to his principles as a minister, but politically he couldn't really afford to alienate so much institutional support that was backing his movement and really providing a lot of legal impetus behind it in terms of providing the attention and the consideration and, and all of the stuff that really was necessary to him progressing at that particular point in time. So that's 1965 and 1966. Then we get to February 1967 and MLK writes, in February 1967, the slender cord which held me threatened to break. February 25th, 1967, he gives a speech in California uh, that he criticizes the war directly. He says, quote, we must combine the fervor of the civil rights movement with the peace movement. 
and he calls this speech the casualties of the war in Vietnam. So this is the first speech that is in its entirety dedicated to addressing Vietnam. Yeah. He, reiter- he reiterates this position in March in Chicago, and then April 4th, 1967, at Riverside Church, King gives a speech that is called the Beyond, Beyond Vietnam Speech. Uh, Matthias, do you want to introduce the listeners to that? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot to unpack here. So basically what he's doing here um, is he he's he's elaborating and articulating on what the the political implications of what his religious beliefs are as a, as a minister, right? And so he says, my minister my ministry is in obedience to the one who loved his enemies so fully that he died for them. What then can I say to the Viet Cong or to Castro or to Mao as a faithful minister of this one? Can I threaten them with death, or must I not share with them my life? By, by addressing his fellow Christians from the pulpit of America, as Reverend Cook called it. And he says that the privilege and burden of all of us who deem ourselves bound by allegiances and loyalties which are broader and deeper than nationalism and which go beyond our nation's self-defined goals and positions. We are called to speak for the weak, for the voiceless, for victims of our nations, and for those it calls enemy. For no document from human hands can make these humans any less our brother. So his goal is essentially to, it's not just to help the people of Montgomery. It's not just to help the people of the South. It's not just to help the people of the United States. It's not even a political move, what he's doing. It's actually a spiritual, psychological, historical movement. And it's global. He sees it as integrated worldwide. He really wants to eradicate uh, notions of racism from the human heart. You know what I mean? That's an insane goal. Yeah. I mean, that's really, the, and, and it's something that he, he ever wants would to have, rehabilitate our souls in a sense. I think that's exactly right. So the question is, what would have success have looked like to someone like him? Uh, it's hard to say. A lot of these ideas that we're talking about earlier, we were discussing the uh, economic radicalism that he started uh, speaking out about. Here, we're talking about his anti-war radicalism. These fuse in the Vietnam speech, and there's a quote here where he addresses how. Uh, the Vietnam War is affecting the poor. He says, quote, I knew that America would never invest the necessary funds or energies in the rehabilitation of the poor so long as adventures like Vietnam continued to draw men and skills and money like some demonic, destructive suction tube. So I was increasingly compelled to see the war as an enemy of the poor and to attack it as such. The war is an enemy of the poor, is what he's saying. It's diverting resources away from from dealing squarely with the issue of poverty in his eyes. Exactly, and he addresses the fact that the war is uh, is killing poor people in much higher proportion than it is uh, any other segment of society, and he's also addressing the fact that the war is killing black people more than it's killing anyone else in society. You know, we're talking about his economic radicalism, his yeah. military radicalism, all of this stuff. Let's, you remember yesterday during the passage where we said, look, I mean, he was really uncomfortable with this label of revolutionary. Yeah. Because for him, this wasn't radical at all. Yeah. This, so, this is not a radical, this is not, not, this is in no way, shape, or what he's talking about is in no way, shape, or form radical. For him, these, the, the things that he's articulating flow simply from, from his faith beyond Vietnam in terms of economics is so he's recognizing the fact that this is affecting the poor disproportionately um, and, and he, he's starting to talk about 
the radical restructuring of American society. He talks about the edifice of American society. Here is what he, he says. He brings together economics and God and the reasons he's giving this speech. You, you mentioned that he's, he's giving this from the point of view of a preacher who can no longer uh, hold it in, in good conscience to not speak about the war. He says, quote, The true, true compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. A true revolution of values will look uneasily on the glaring contrast of poverty and wealth. That is what he says regarding the Vietnam War, and and then he begins to go on in this spiritual vein. Matthias, do you wanna do you wanna talk about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a, this is a really powerful, powerful statement from 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 Martin Luther King Jr. And you understand also why why when he says something like this, he's immediately exposing himself to a wealth of criticism from essentially the entirety of American society because this goes to the heart of what the issue is in his mind. He says, a nation that that continues to spend year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. Right? So, so he, he, he sees this, he, he, sees, he looks at, at the Vietnam War through the paradigm of a spiritual man who's understanding the direction that his country is going in at that particular point in time. Uh, he actually says uh, it's his responsibility as a Nobel Peace Prize winner uh, to talk about the war. He says, quote, I cannot forget that the Nobel Peace Prize was also a commission to work harder than I had ever worked before for the Brotherhood of Man. This calling takes me beyond national allegiances. Uh, so we start seeing all these things in, the, in this speech. Uh, this speech has major fallout, it, it, needless to oh, say, absolutely. because this is where absolutely. he steps out on a limb. He goes further than he's ever gone before. And what ends up happening is uh, he gives this speech on April 4th. 4th yeah. April 12th, the NAACP say, uh, passes a resolution that says, quote, to attempt to merge the civil rights movement with the peace movement is, in our judgment, a serious tactical mistake. Uh, furthermore, it's important to note that at this time, uh, only 25% of black Americans favored King's anti-war stance. We have the, the NAACP resolution. We have the statistic about... Uh, the fact that that uh, black Americans did not agree with this, um, and on top of that, almost every uh, editorial board in the country came out saying that King was a disservice Service. to his cause because of this speech and to his people. And right? to his people, I mean, they're they're, they're, they're yeah. coming out and essentially they're 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 condemning him and indicting him. After his his Riverside address, he gave a similar sermon at his even Ebenezer congregation, and he talked a little bit about the response that he was getting from the press. And it's important to note this because as a speaker and as a preacher, Martin Luther King Jr. never really expressed anger, right? He was extremely aspirational, always extremely optimistic, very uplifting tone he took. And, and here he says, and, 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 and the author, may, and, and Vincent Harding makes note of this, he says this with traces of anger in his voice, which is significant. He says, there's something strangely inconsistent about a nation and a press that will praise you when you say be nonviolent toward Bull Connor and Jim, Jim Clark in Alabama, but will curse and damn you when you say be nonviolent toward little brown Vietnamese children. There's something wrong with that press. That is a profound statement. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, clearly, clearly at this point, you know, he's, I, I think, you know, when he makes a statement like that, it's very clear in retrospect that for him, you know, the, the position he took, the reaction he got to that position 
really confirmed what he thought was wrong with American society at that particular point in time. So you have to understand that through the summer of 1967, though. Exactly. I mean, what happened in, in, in the summer of 67, essentially, almost 150 cities across the United States, urban centers, erupted in either protest or riot, with the most significant one being the Detroit riots. So we hope you enjoyed that excerpt, and it proved informative and helped prepare you for the discussion that's being held at 3 p.m. April 7th, Friday afternoon at the Howard Thurman Center. The discussion is regarding, once again, the Beyond Vietnam speech that we just discussed, and it's being led by Andrew Kimmel and Emily Ling from the Breeze School of Theology. We hope to see you there. If you were interested by this and you want to hear more uh, about our episode on MLK, you can go to bucommonthread.com. Scroll down to the bottom of the archive. Uh, what you just heard was minutes 22 to 35, so 0 to 22, and 35 to the end is what you haven't heard. Um, we hope you enjoy, and uh, we hope you subscribe to us uh, on iTunes and sign up for email alerts on our website. Thanks, and we'll keep looking for the common thread. <laughs>